This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at Ravinia.org. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events. The phrase healthy weight, it's not as cut and dry as you might think. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. We're taught from a young age that your weight affects your health. We learn that it's healthy to be thin and that gaining weight means you're less healthy. But where do those beliefs come from? All this week, we have been discussing weight bias and stigma in our series, Bias Against Bodies. And we've been asking listeners and guests where they see it show up in the world. And by far, we got the most thoughts about health and healthcare. I would have to go into a new doctor's office and be very assertive about, let's not talk about my weight. Throughout my pregnancy, I was constantly reminded to not gain more than a certain amount of weight due to already being, quote unquote, obese. If you have a BMI over 35, you cannot get an organ transplant. I've heard a lot of people refer to my business and my clients, well, as long as they're healthy. And we would never say that to a thin person. In our final installment of Bias Against Bodies, we want to talk about healthcare, specifically fat phobia at the doctor's office. To dig into this issue, we're speaking with Chicago psychiatrist Dr. Kate Johnson, who's the interim chair of psychiatry at Loyola University. Also with us is Marcusel Mercedes, who goes by Mikey. She's a writer, fat liberationist, and a doctoral student at Brown University's School of Public Health. Mikey, in that introduction, we heard some clips of other people's stories. Does any of that sound consistent with your experience seeking health care? Oh, yeah. It's pretty much like hearing my story told back at me. (laughs) You know, I think that most fat people can relate to having their health concerns dismissed or having providers, you know, sort of propose weight loss as like this prerequisite to getting other care that they actually need. And really my entire history within clinical interactions has been defined by that until very recently when I got lucky enough to find a fat inclusive doctor. Fat (laughs) inclusive doctor. Tell me what that looks like. You know, it's, it's interesting because when I say fat inclusive doctor, that's probably equivalent to like the care that thin people receive just on like a regular just like on a basic level, mm-hmm. you know, some people think of fat inclusive medicine as being, you know, having the option to, for example, skip being weighed, you know, at the at the beginning of an appointment. But it's a, it's a lot more than that. The other part of that is that I'm actually listened to. I know that when I walk into my doctor now that my concerns will just be considered for what they are. Dr. Johnson, let's pivot to you. First, I'm wondering your reaction to what we just heard. Is it resonating? Oh, absolutely. This is, you know, a story I hear from my patients over and over, but it's also a story that I've lived as well. And, you know, it's interesting for me as someone who is a healthcare provider to then go into these spaces and have these people who are ostensibly my colleagues look at me through that singular lens. 
and, you know, tell me that this is a problem that, you know, oh, this would just be solved if you got more activity. And I'm like, well, you haven't asked me how much activity I'm doing. You absolutely have no idea what I'm doing. You're just making a judgment. So for me, I have that ability to go in and be like, hey, you know, I went to med school too. I know that that isn't what's going on here. We need to have a different conversation. So for somebody to go in and not have that background and that knowledge and that experience, I can't even imagine how much worse that is. Mm. And Mikey, you call yourself a fat liberationist. So tell Mm -hmm. us about what you study and how you came into this area of study. Oh, absolutely. So at Brown, I really focus on weight stigma in healthcare specifically, and as experienced by fat black women, I'm really, really interested in this sort of intersection between anti-fatness and anti-blackness or racism. The two are very closely connected, and that means that fat black people are the most impacted by medical fat phobia. And that's sort of what my work focuses on. I actually had an experience uh, about a month and a half into my PhD program where I was experiencing debilitating back pain to the point where, like, I couldn't walk and I couldn't move. I'm from New York, so we we walk everywhere. You You do. That you do, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. So I I was shocked. You know, it it was a new experience for me. And the challenges I experienced trying to get anybody to take it seriously that really pushed me to look at what fatness means in society and what are the consequences of that. Interesting. Yeah. And and for folks who don't know, Mikey, what's the Health at Every Size movement? Health at Every Size is a framework of care. So it's less a movement than it is a perspective on health care. And it's intended to promote safe and equitable access to health care for people regardless of size without a focus on weight or weight loss. That framework exists as a response by a group of professionals who witness the discrimination that fat people experience in multiple areas of life and the increasing focus on the obesity epidemic in the late 1900s, early 2000s. And I believe that the Association for Size, Diversity, and Health, which owns the Hayes trademarks, I'm pretty sure that they're aiming to revise their Hayes guidelines and curriculum soon to make it more accessible to those who are most impacted by fat phobia and much less focused on health behaviors. I see. And and I just want to be clear for listeners, when you say haze, you're talking about health at every size, H-A-E-S. So Mm -hmm. to that end, we often hear certain conditions or certain diseases, they're caused by weight gain or if you're a higher weight to begin with. So is that not true? No. (laughs) What does the research show? Research is very interesting on this. So we have a lot of research that links higher BMIs, which BMI is a a very complicated measure, but we have a lot of research that links higher BMI to increased risk for a lot of different conditions. And the reason why this is interesting but doesn't actually tell us that fatness causes diseases is because weight stigma, as in the discrimination and abuse that fat people experience as a result of being fat is actually also linked to all of those increased risks for conditions and diseases. So we don't actually have evidence that supports that fatness causes disease. We actually really have evidence that says fat people experiencing stigma increases their risk for many diseases. 
But that stigma is sort of obscured as fatness itself. And so then you have researchers parroting the idea that obesity is associated with increased risk for heart disease without acknowledging yeah. how experiencing stigma, especially for those who are black and fat, who experience this like load strain from it being discriminated against on the basis of their race and their weight, they don't ex- talk about how that's extremely stressful and the physiological processes involved in experiencing discrimination also put people at higher risk for diseases. All right. So let, let's bring Dr. Johnson back in here. So firstly, would you consider yourself a health at every size practitioner? Absolutely. How does that come into play in your practice as a psychiatrist? Yeah. So for me, it's a little bit different in, in a couple of ways. One is that, you know, I had really good foundational training in working with people with eating disorders. So one of the things I learned very quickly is, you know, we don't focus on the numbers. We don't talk about weight. We don't focus on those things. We focus on what I've come to know as pro-health behaviors, right? You want to be your best self. You're going to do things that are going to promote your general health. When I encountered the health at every size ideology, it felt very similar to what I was already doing because of that foundational training that I had. So for me, it comes into my daily practice in a couple of different ways. One is, you know, this is something obviously a lot of my patients deal with and have a lot of stigma and and shame and all of that kind of wrapped up in it. So we have to deal with that. As, you know, as Mikey was saying, people accessing healthcare is a really big deal, and just the the, bar- the extra barrier that it creates to actually get my patients to see other providers and to get their general health under control. The other thing that it does in terms of my daily practice is it just informs the way I kind of talk to people about, you know, we're going to do things that are good for your health, and they're going to be good for your health across the board, and we're not going to focus on this one particular variable. Well, I want you to help us understand where this kind of bias comes from, Dr. Johnson. And I'm curious what you saw as a medical student and how that differs from what you're teaching now. It's an interesting situation because I think in some ways it's gotten a little bit better um, because people are a little bit more aware. There's more, this has gotten a little bit more traction, this idea of health at any size. But in a lot of ways, I think it's, it's also gotten a little bit worse. Because among other things, we've gotten to a point where fat phobia is sort of the last acceptable bias, right? And so people are going to call you out now if you're being blatantly racist or you're being ageist or ableist or homophobic. Like, people aren't going to just let you kind of skate on by with that. But they're perfectly happy to let you be fat phobic still. It's become a bit more of a prominent issue just because it's the last thing that, that people can kind of get away with. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Has a doctor ever told you to eat less and exercise more without even asking how much you already exercise and eat? If so, you are not alone. As we've been hearing, fat phobia can run rampant in healthcare settings. We're talking about the impact of healthcare barriers with public health doctoral student Mikey Mercedes and psychiatrist Dr. Kate Johnson. So last week on the program, we spoke with Brandy Sullivan, who runs the Fat Legal Rights Advocacy and Education Project. We were talking to her about workplace discrimination, but she also had a lot to say about medical fat phobia. Let's listen. If fat people can't get the health care they need yeah. and should be getting, 
then all these other things don't matter as much because it ends up, I mean, people die for not getting the treatment they need to be getting. So, Mikey, some of us are familiar with this phrase, the war on obesity. Tell us where that started. Absolutely. So it's very common for people to talk about the roots of the war on obesity as starting with, like, the Reagan administration, at which time Surgeon General C. Everett Koop made fatness in America one of his main priorities. And then following that, there was a bunch of declarations from institutions like the World Health Organization and the CDC talking about how obesity prevalence was rising so quickly that it was an epidemic, which is really interesting and inflammatory language because you can't catch fat. It's not an infection or a virus or a bacteria. But that kind of obesity epidemic language really caught on. And despite a lot of research that opposes the idea that weight is what decides health, that fat panic has stuck for many years. I say, and there has been recent scholarship that um, supports this, that it goes back a lot further than that. You know, during the Enlightenment period, when science was like really popping off, you know, people were really thinking about how to classify the world and understand it. The first forms of scientific thought were about how to categorize human beings, specifically how to understand different kinds of human beings. And that's how this sort of concept of race sort of came about. The earliest scientists doing race science sort of designated Black people as the most inferior race of people. Part of the ways that they did that was by talking about the quote-unquote gluttonous, pleasure-seeking nature of Africans, as well as their bodies, the fatness of their bodies. And that kind of rhetoric helped justify the global slave trade. And so these ideas about racial inferiority are directly tied to fatness. Wow. Just taking a moment to sit with that, Mikey. Lots of of (laughs) gems dropped there. I also want to touch on something else that we've seen in the news a lot lately. That's the use of diabetes medications like Ozempic for weight loss. What's going on there? Oh my gosh. Okay. So, well, a while ago now, it's been over a year now, Novo Nordisk had a medication called Wigovi approved. It has the same ingredient as Ozempic, which is a diabetes management medication. As the weight loss industry sort of has this new thing to market to people who are desperate to lose weight because of fat phobia, it's actually created a shortage in diabetes medications. Because as Wegovi has sold out, people have started prescribing medications like Ozempic and Trulicity and Manjaro off-label. So yeah, so now you have shortage in these like life-saving medications. It's a very serious issue, but some people have sort of taken to blaming fat people specifically for taking these medications for weight loss when, in fact, fat people don't really have a choice as to whether or not they engage in these medications a lot of the time because usually weight loss is seen as, as I mentioned earlier, a prerequisite to other kinds of care that people need. Dr. Johnson, you sometimes work with patients who have gone through weight loss treatment, like bariatric surgery, right? What what do you hear from them? A lot of my patients certainly have gone through bariatric either surgeries or on medications or things like that. Um, And, you know, whether or not they have results short-term, whether or not they have results long-term, 
these aren't benign procedures. They aren't benign, benign medications. And I think that's something that gets really glossed over um, in, in the public and, and sometimes by the doctors, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, like you were saying, a lot of times this is like, a pre- like, oh, you have to have bariatric surgery before you can have this other surgical procedure. And that doesn't always make sense to me. The risk may be different, but this, again, bariatric surgery is a has a lot of comorbidity, even if it's, you know, whether it's whether it's successful or not, just by the nature of what we're doing, there are a lot of side effects to it, right? So there's a lot of vitamin deficiencies that are possible. People really struggle with how to get their nutrition and things like that. There was a recent study that came out looking at, like, the last 30 years of bariatric surgery saying, oh, it's safe and you know, the among patients with diabetes and hypertension, the mortality rates go down. And then there was this little line at the end of like, oh, and by the way, the suicide rates went up. But that's okay because people are getting thin, which I concede is a little bit of my read on the end of it. But right. um, you know, but it's it was it was fascinating to me watching this get reported because it's like, oh yeah, the suicide rate increased. Anyway, the risks and benefits, blah blah blah. And I'm like, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. Like we wouldn't talk about a knee surgery like that. Right. Mm. So and then, again, when you look at sort of the outcomes of some of these other surgeries in patients who have just obesity, right, not other confounding factors, the the outcomes are not necessarily as bad as they are sometimes. We're, we're, we're sometimes led to believe even in medicine. So it's a it's a I really see. complicated picture about how this is presented to people and how people access this and whether, like you said before, like whether or not they really have an option to engage in some of this if they want to get what should be regular routine care. Well, I want to play one more clip. This is trainer Louise Green, who we spoke to earlier in this series. The narrative that people going to the doctor and being told that they're obese and that this, that it's this major doom and gloom prescription. I just think that narrative has to change because, People can be healthy in a range of body sizes. So, Mikey, tell us, how do we change the narrative? Something that I heard in Louise's answer, especially about this doom and gloom, right? I've been thinking a lot about the experiences that fat children in particular are put through. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard, but recently the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended weight loss medications and bariatric surgery for children. Like young children. I remember seeing that headline. Yeah. Young children, and they're actually, sooner or later, they're going to set their sights on kids who are below the age of two. So that is going to come at some point. Um, One of the ways in which this doom and gloom is, like, really harmful is that you sort of, as a fat person, come to understand your life as a sort of death. Like, I've been told that I was going to die from my weight since I was a child. And Wow. That is the kind of thing that most fat people could probably echo and say that they've also gone through it. But that's one of the kinds of things that really warps your worldview. And first, we need to stop telling fat people that they are going to die as a result of their weight because it's mentally, emotionally, physiologically damaging. And then the other thing is that we need to stop talking about weight loss as a moral obligation. There are some people who will never, there are many people actually, who will never be able to achieve weight loss. They deserve good health care. 
they deserve to be paid the same, that people should be able to be in public space with, without having to resort to like squeezing themselves into spaces that do not fit them. And this starts with medicine because medicine is the primary way by which people come to hate fatness. Medical professionals have promoted the idea that fatness is a marker for deficiency, a marker for sickness, a marker for badness. And the sooner that medicine stops promoting that idea and starts treating fat people as people, then eventually we will get to a point where fat people are treated equally in all other areas of life. I will give you the last word, Dr. Johnson. Anything that you'd add? I think that's a really good point. You know, we are advocates for our patients, and we should be advocates for all of our patients, and we should recognize that people come in in all sorts of different packages, and we, not only do we need to meet people where they are, we are the purveyors of hope, we are the purveyors of health, and we need to act like it regardless of who's in front of us, and we need to, this is a great opportunity for medicine to start confronting the inherent biases and the things that we hold on to that may not be serving us anymore. That is Dr. Kate Johnson, who is the interim chair of psychiatry at Loyola University, and Marcus L. Mercedes, a doctoral student at Brown University's School of Public Health. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Let's turn now to someone who has thought deeply and written about her own experience with fat phobia in the medical world. Yvette Dion is a writer and magazine editor, and she recently released a new memoir called Weightless. Yvette, your book Weightless came out last month, and you've said it was a long time coming for you. How so? What made you finally sit down to write it? It was a long time coming for me because it wasn't the book I originally set out to write. The original iteration of this book dealt a lot more with the relationship between fatness and dating. And then once I was diagnosed with two chronic illnesses when I was 29 and 30, I knew the book really needed to shift to become this iteration of the book because it really allowed me to better understand the ways in which our medical industry mistreats fat people, misdiagnoses fat people, overlooks and dismisses fat people. And that's why it has taken me so long to write this version of the book. We'll talk more about your experience with illness and and how that in turn changed your relationship with your body. Yes. So I was diagnosed with heart failure when I was 29. I was subsequently diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension, which is a rare progressive uh, lung condition when I was 30. And I had been spending many years going to different doctors saying that something is wrong. I'm having these symptoms. Nothing is alleviating them. Something is wrong. Something is wrong only to be met with doctors who essentially told me to lose weight. If you lose weight, you will feel better, never considering that my body was gaining weight because I was retaining fluid um, because of my heart and lung conditions. And so it made me realize that all of the times that I was saying something was wrong, that there was a bias because of the size of my body. And it took me finding one doctor who took my symptoms seriously for me to be diagnosed. And by the time that happened, my heart was working at 16%. Wow. So what you just described, is that consistent with the rest of your life experience? Having to go doctor to doctor and and get second and third opinions? 
It has been to some degree. I was a fat child. So when I was eight, I was diagnosed with asthma. I had really chronic asthma in and out of the hospital for many years. So I was put on a steroid designed to curb the illness from recurring every winter in my case, and it caused me to gain weight. And so my parents were taking me from doctor to doctor, trying to find someone who would treat the asthma without being so concerned about the weight. So Mm -hmm. it's definitely an experience I've had for a long period of time. Now, the full title of your book is Weightless, Making Space for My Resilient Body and Soul. How exactly do you make that space for yourself? I'm very committed to self-care and not the way we think about self-care in terms of buying products or spending money or the capitalist aspect of self-care, but really listening to my body and prioritizing what my body needs, whatever that may be. I am one of those people who will take a nap in the middle of the day if my body is tired. I stop working after eight hours. I never overwork now because I know that my body needs rest to recuperate and to move through illnesses. So making space for myself looks like advocating for what my body needs, finding doctors who treat me with the care and the respect and the dignity that I feel I deserve, and ensuring that my body is my top priority. Nothing else comes above ensuring that I feel well. How did you make that shift to to that brand of self-care that you described? Therapy. Honestly, Mm. therapy. I say all the time, I'm a recovering, yeah. yeah, I'm a recovering workaholic. And therapy was was essential to helping me realize that I'm not successful as a writer and as a journalist because I overwork. I'm successful because I'm good at my job. And I don't need to be a perfectionist and I don't need to work myself into the ground as long as I show up and do my work to the best of my ability in the time that I'm allotted, I will continue to be successful. And recognizing that was a huge shift for me and changed everything in terms of how I treat myself and my body. In our last segment, Mikey Mercedes introduced us to the concept of fat liberation, right? And you consider yourself a fat liberationist too, right? I do, yes. What does it mean for you, that term? It means that I am an activist who is committed to creating a more equitable world for fat people in many iterations of what that looks like. But essentially, I'm committed to dismantling fat phobia in all of our systems, increasing the representations of nuanced fat people in our media, particularly our visual media, so television and film, and committed to creating the sorts of policies that allow fat people to retain their dignity at work, at amusement parks, anywhere in which fat people are interacting with systems. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. And to wrap our series, Bias Against Bodies, we've been talking to writer and magazine editor Yvette Dion about her recent memoir, Weightless. So I want to change gears just a little bit. The uh, American Academy of Pediatrics updated its guidance on childhood obesity earlier this month, and it it caught a lot of our eyes here on the Reset team. You also recently wrote a piece in BuzzFeed News about some of these new guidelines. So for anyone who might not have heard, Yvette, what did the AAP say? For a long period of time, the AAP took what they called a watch and wait approach to children who they deemed obese, meaning that they didn't intervene when it came to that child's weight. And the new guidelines ask doctors to aggressively intervene. So if you are under the age of 14, 
your doctor can now prescribe your child weight loss medication. If they are over the age of 14, they can prescribe your child bariatric surgery to prevent that child from becoming larger as they age. Hmm. And so it's a new approach. It's very aggressive because in their view and in the view of the scientists who did this research, if a child is obese, um, at that age, the likelihood of them continue to be obese increases. And so they're intervening very early and very aggressively. So what do you think about this guidance? I think it's incredibly misguided. I think on one end, um, doctors and scientists and researchers are trying to approach the idea of obesity from a new angle, which is that it's not a moral failure. It is something that everybody is different. It is something that's a brain disease, as, as some of the science out there now. And on the flip side, they're still saying that treating that requires weight loss. And so it requires aggressive approaches to weight loss to make people's bodies smaller, opposed to asking our society to shift the way in which we think about fatness overall. So it's still coming to the same conclusion, but using different language to do it. This reminds me of a, a section in your memoir where in the first essay that's titled No Country for Fat Kids, you write, quote, the reality is that fat children are bombarded with reminder after reminder that their bodies are abnormal and need to be fixed, end quote. So how does what we're seeing now, you think, play into this decades-long history of, of targeting kids for their weight? It's an absolute continuation of it. It's no different. The The example that I point out in the book is Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign, which often took similar approaches to trying to curb the idea of childhood obesity. And so what we have is decades-long research that says that by targeting children, you actually cause them to gain more weight because the fat shaming and the not wanting to go to the doctor, the surveillance that's happening sometimes at home, but often at schools and at doctor's offices actually encourages children to eat more because they're trying to eat away that shame of being surveilled all the time. And so it's just a continuation of that. I don't imagine it's actually the new guidelines are actually going to make any difference in the rates of childhood obesity. It doesn't address the systemic issues that sometimes cause children to gain weight, such as food deserts, for instance, poverty, for instance, none of that addresses those systemic issues. It just targets children. And when you target children, the results are never good. Imagine this kind of healthcare approach was around when you were a child. I can imagine. Yeah. How do you think it would have affected your experience seeking care? I think it would have affected it tremendously. I am very fortunate that I come from a family that primarily has larger people. My mother is a larger woman. My grandmother's a larger woman. I was surrounded by larger women throughout my entire life. And so my parents were really hyper-conscious of not making me ashamed of my body and finding doctors who didn't either. But I imagine that that would have been even more difficult than it was when I was a child 30 years ago because of this new guidance. We've seen a pretty decent amount of media coverage about these AAP guidelines. Is there anything that you wish journalists would do differently when covering weight stigma? I wish journalists would stop taking doctors and researchers, particularly in the realm of obesity, at face value to stop just re-reporting what they're saying without interrogating the underlying notion of it, 
the underlying bias of it because every study that has been released about doctors and fat bias shows that the medical industry has a bias against fat people. They consider fat people on the same level as folks who have addictions, as folks who are unhoused, that they're in the same realm. And so if every study is showing that, and that is the underlying reason why we're here, then just repeating what doctors and scientists are saying without that context, without interrogating, without challenging, just allows fat phobia to continue. So we've got to also be honest, right? Advocating for yourself it's not easy, right? It, it can be hard to do even in the best of circumstances, let alone when you have a doctor who's breezing in for you know, a 10 minute appointment and, and trying to rush you out. Right. So right. give us some advice for people who want or need to advocate for themselves in healthcare settings like you did. The first thing I always recommend to people is to find a health at every size doctor. They have a database at Health at Every Size Doctors, and these are physicians, many of whom are family physicians, who believe that there isn't an immediate link between weight and health. So finding a doctor who believes in that philosophy is critical. So I always say to start there. And then in terms of advocating for yourself, two of the quick things I recommend. One, you can always call ahead of a doctor's appointment a couple of days before, a week before, and just make it clear that you do not want to use this appointment to talk about weight, to set a very clear boundary. Oh. You can also... When you're going into the doctor, we just assume that it's normal to just get weighed. Unless you are getting anesthesia or something that's dictated by weight, you can always decline to be weighed when you go into the doctor's office. And if you forget, because sometimes we freeze up, it's great to train the person who's going with you, whether it's a partner or a parent or a friend, to say, hey, when we get in here, remind me to tell them I don't want to be weighed. Very good advice. I, I had no idea that you could even... Do that. That's great. I want to also end on a high note, Yvette. The, the final essay in your book, Weightless, it's titled Back to the Fat Future. So what do you want to see in that future? What What's giving you hope? I am hopeful that with lobbying and organizing, that the fat liberation movement can begin to make inroads in terms of policy. And so that looks like advocating with the federal government and state legislatures to pass workplace discrimination laws. So currently, Michigan is the only state in the United States that forbids employers from discriminating against employees because of the size of their bodies. That should be a nationwide legislation. That should not happen in any state in our union. So that's something that I can see in this future. I can see a future in which we are working with the United States government and with Congress to try to pass legislation to limit the amount of dieting ads that you see, not only on television, but online, on social media, to regulate the way in which that is peddled out, particularly to young people. We could set standards as they did in the early 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s about the amount of representation that you see on television of fat characters and what those limits should be in the way that they did for Black characters back then. That's a possibility. And then, of course, ending the surveillance of children. I think children have to endure so much already. 
to, on top of that, surveil their bodies and the size of their bodies and aggressively intervene as their bodies are growing. That should stop, full stop, no matter what it takes. You've given us a lot to think about. Yvette Dion is a writer, magazine editor, and the author of a memoir that's called Weightless. Thank you, Yvette. Thank you so much. This episode of Reset was produced by Sarah Stark, and it was edited by Andrew Merriweather. If you enjoyed our Bias Against Bodies series, share it with a friend and leave us a review on our podcast. It really helps support the work that we do. That's all for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Have a great weekend. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.